in our series, uh, How To's for the Christian Life. And we find ourselves uh, in James chapter 2. And so if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of James. Uh, James is towards the end of your New Testament after the book of Hebrews. A short five chapter book that we're going to continue on. The book of James chapter 2. Um, many of you probably are familiar with the song uh, from Casting Crowns that uh, just played. It's a, it's a very good song. I really, I really enjoy it a lot. And the, the, the words or the, the verse, if you will, that really struck me and that I think uh, really applies to where we're going today in James chapter 2 um, was the tagline, if you will. And the tagline, I believe, went something like this. Um, Jesus paid much too high a price for us to pick and choose who should come. And I think as James jumps in, chapter 2, and talks about favoritism, um, I think that he will uh, address this issue head on. So would you pray with me again this morning? We'll jump into the text. Father, again, thank you for your word. I pray that you would speak uh, very clearly to us on uh, such an important issue, how we are to treat one another, how we are to love one another as believers in Jesus. And I pray that you would uh, just penetrate our hearts with this text and that you would evaluate our lives uh, with this text and with the teaching of your Son. Spirit, come, move among us. Uh, I pray that you would find open hearts, uh, open minds, and uh, changed lives. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So many of you probably noticed that something was a little bit different in church today. Um, how many of you received a piece of candy this morning? Raise your hand, would you? Oh, and you happened to all be on one side of the church. Huh, funny how that happened. Um, yeah, some of you received a special treatment, did you not? And some of you, uh, the have-nots on this half of the church, didn't receive special treatment. Um, some of you received a gift, and some of you... Well, you have your mouths watering because you watched this side chew on some uh, delightful candy. Um, some of us this morning were uh, was shown favoritism, if you will, and uh, some of us uh, experienced the negative end of favoritism. John uh, this morning said, you chose this side because you sit on it, don't you? <laughs> and I said, well, yeah, maybe. <laughs> And so James, in James chapter 2, uh, talks about this issue of favoritism. You know, none of us really enjoy seeing favoritism. None of us really enjoy when we get the short end of the stick. Uh, none of us really enjoy when we see preferential treatment in any area of life. But I would submit to you that we especially disdain it when we see it in the church. We especially loathe it when we are on the short end of the stick when we see favoritism in the body of Christ. And so James jumps on this issue as we continue our series, How-Tos for the Christian Life. In James chapter 2, he's going to tell us how to fight favoritism. How are we in the body of Christ, specifically in the body of Christ, how are we to fight favoritism? And what he's going to do is he's going to give us five tools. And so if you have uh, a notebook and you like taking notes, or maybe you want to take notes on, on your Bible, you like to write in your Bible, uh, we're going to get five tools as we go through the text, James chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 13. And, and James is going to give us these tools to put in our tool belt, if you will, to teach us how to be a church that is free of favoritism. And so let's go ahead and jump into the text, verse 1. Uh, actually, let's read the text as a whole. I'm just going to read it together, verses 1 through 13, and then we'll jump into verse 1. Uh, James begins chapter 2, and he says this My brothers, 
Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And he gives us an example. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothes comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin. And are convicted by the law as a transgressor. For whomever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and act As those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. And he concludes by saying this. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Reading of the word of God. So James here, I think, intends to give us five tools for our tool belt. And let's jump in to the first tool. It's found in verse 1. And the first tool that James gives us to fight favoritism is to realize that it goes against the gospel. It's to realize simply this, that when we show favoritism in the body of Christ, it goes against, it contradicts the very gospel, the very good news That we found our faith in. And so James begins and he says that favoritism is not compatible. It's not compatible with the gospel. Read with me verse 1 again. He begins, my brothers. He's pleading to them as a fellow believer, as a loving pastor. My brothers, show no partiality. Your translation may say favoritism. Show no partiality as you hold the faith. Notice that as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Lord of glory. And so the first thing that I want us to see is that when we show favoritism, man, we are contradicting the very foundation of our faith. We are going against the very gospel, the good news that we placed our faith in when we believed in Jesus Christ. You could say that we are being utter hypocrites when favoritism ekes and rears its ugly head in the church and it undermines the very gospel that we preach. And so how does that happen? Why is that true? How is it that when I treat some people differently than I do other people in the body, how does that undermine the gospel? Well, I think it undermines the gospel in this way. First of all, we have to ask the question, 
What is the gospel? I'm talking about the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Well, what is that? Uh, very simply, the gospel is this, that God, uh, from before time, uh, created humanity to know and to love him and to honor him and to be in relationship with him. A man beginning with Adam and Eve and ever since, our ancestors, his ancestors, including me and you, messed that up. We rebelled against God. We sinned. Our relationship with God has been broken. And we now worship ourselves and living things, and we are alienated from God. We are sinners, the Bible says. And the good news is that God does not condemn us to eternal hell, uh, wrath forever, forever, but he makes a way out. He sends his son, his own son, whom he knew from the beginning of time. And the son, in humility and love, uh, becomes human. God himself, the second person of the Trinity, becomes human incarnates himself, lives a perfect life because we could not be perfect before a perfect God, lives a perfect life and dies a gruesome, bloody, horrible death in our place for our sins, taking the wrath of the Holy God so that I don't have to take it and you don't have to take it. And we then, upon faith and by grace alone, simply by God's good gift, we reach out our arms to the gift of Jesus Christ, forgiveness of sins, eternal life, Becoming a new creature. And Jesus offers that to us. And we simply take it by faith. That is the good news. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the gospel says that we take it by faith. We don't earn it. It's not merited. Jesus does not just offer that to some races, to some classes, to some nations. That it's available to everyone who would come to Jesus Christ. And we receive that not because of what we make, not because of how we look, not because of how good or bad we think we are, not because we make a certain income, not because of anything except for faith. Not because of anything except for grace. And so you could say that God puts no conditions. God puts no conditions of his acceptance of us except for faith. Except for belief in the gospel. That is the only condition. And he says, all come. And the reason why that is contrary, the reason why that goes against uh, the reason why favoritism goes against that gospel is because when we show favoritism, what we are doing is we are placing conditions in the body of Christ. Me to you, you to your brother. We are placing conditions on our acceptance of our blood-bought brother and sister in Christ. Do you see how that is contrary? God does not put conditions on his love except for faith. And we, in the body of Christ go against the very gospel we, that we believe, that we profess, that we preach and share with others. When we, when I, put any condition on how I love you and how I treat you and how I respect you. And so, we, I think, in the church, this church and the church in general, can put conditions, we can put conditions on our love and on our acceptance of our fellow believers. We can do that in a lot of ways. Maybe uh, the person doesn't make quite as much money as, as, as we do. They're not in the same social uh, network, if you will. And so we think less of them. We don't treat them as well. We don't listen to their opinion. Maybe they live outside of the Sisna Park bubble. Maybe they live in Gibson City or somewhere else. And we can think, uh, well, they're just not quite the citizens that us Cisna folks are. Um, we can treat people who tend to be trendy like we are. Maybe we're trendy and we've got the newest clothes and we keep up with the newest style and we have cool glasses and nice haircuts and we're trendy. And there's nothing wrong with being trendy. 
but we look at those who are maybe not quite as edgy, not quite as trendy. They don't quite wear the newest styles. In fact, maybe they're out of style. And we look at them and we think poorly. We think less of them. We attribute less value to them. Maybe we look at someone whose kids in the church don't quite behave the way ours do. Yeah, our kids aren't bad. They're pretty good. But man, so-and-so. They run roughshod. They're here and they're there and they don't obey. And we don't associate with them. We don't want our kids to play with them. And we show favoritism in the body of Christ. Pastor Jeff Miller, I think, sums it up really well, this point about favoritism going against the gospel. He says this, and he he puts it very bluntly. There is no caste system under the cross. There is no caste system under under the cross. And so the first tool that James hits us with is that when we show favoritism, man, it undermines the very gospel that we preach. And when people come in and when we share our faith with people at our workplace, when someone comes in and they hear us saying, God loves you, God, God accepts, accepts you just on the basis of your faith, come to him. It's simply by grace. It's unmerited. There's no condition. And yet we look at them funny. We don't accept them. They're willing to say... Your gospel is a sham. <laughs> it's a sham. You may say that God accepts me, but you don't accept me. Undermines the gospel. The second tool that we see about how to fight favoritism is not only does it go against the gospel, verse 1, and verses 2 through 4, it is judgmental. It is judgmental. And what I mean by that is when we show favoritism, we are placing ourselves as judges over our fellow brother and sister in Jesus Christ. Read this together with me, verses 2 two and f- 2 through 4. James continues. He gives us an illustration. He gives us a scenario. He says, man, there should be no favoritism. It cuts against the gospel. And then he shows us what he means. He gives us one scenario of what this could look like. Maybe it was happening in the churches of his day. Quite likely that it was. He gives them a scenario, an example. What is favoritism? What is partiality? What could it look like in the body of Christ? And he uses an example in verses 2 through 4. And in this example in particular, the favoritism is over money. The favoritism is over the rich and the poor. That's just one example. We're going to get to that in a bit. Let's read this together. Verses 2 through 4. Favoritism is judgmental. Verse 2, For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, their church meeting, if you will, and a poor man in shabby clothing uh, also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, sit down at my feet, Verse 4, he paints the conclusion. This is the result. This is his commentary on what has just happened in the body of Christ. Have you not then, notice two things, made distinctions. Made distinctions among yourselves. And two, become judges. Become judges with evil thoughts. Your translation may say evil motives. I think that all of us can... If we think back through our history, through our life, whether it be at school or at church, I hope not at church, at school, uh, wherever, workplace, I think we can all... 
Think of scenarios that we've been in that we can relate to this scenario. I think we all in our lifetime have been the uh, victim of favoritism, if you will. We have been an experience to where someone else, or maybe we ourselves, is the teacher's pet. We are being uh, sinned against or we are being uh, the one receiving favoritism. I think, man, this hits home. I think we can think of this. I think about uh, my life and I can think about a ton of different scenarios to where favoritism uh, occurred. I can think of scenarios where I was the one receiving the treatment. Uh, my mom was a teacher in high school, and everyone loved her, and everyone loved me. And I'll admit it, I got favored. I was treated favorably. Teachers liked me. They gave me hall passes. They would let me go to the restroom and spend five minutes you know, at the soda pop machine. You know, They gave me favoritism. Um, and so I was on the receiving end, but I've also, as many of you have, been on the short end of the stick, if you will. Uh, one scenario that's you know like this in the context uh, context of church. Um, when I was, I think I was maybe 12 years old, maybe 10, 11, 12, and we decided to move churches. No, I take that back. My mom and dad decided to move churches, and I went along. Um, and so I went to a Methodist church, and they decided to take us to a Southern Baptist church. Big difference, okay? Big difference. And so, uh, long story short, I didn't like it. I hated it. I didn't think they were nice. I didn't feel accepted. Whatever. I didn't like it. Um, I became a Christian there, and so then I loved it. <laughs> Placed my faith in Jesus Christ. They pre- preached the gospel. It still wasn't ideal. But through that time, uh, specifically in the youth group, I was not a believer, and then I became a believer when I was 15. Throughout all of those times, me and my fellow buddies, uh, we lived in a, you probably don't know this, I went to school and lived in a small town, much like Cisna, maybe about twice the size, but it's a very small town, and I graduated with about 60 people. And the church that we were attending was a, uh, oh, they probably had about 500 people in a graduating class. And it was only 10 miles down the road, and we went to church uh, far away from, uh, away from my school, if you know. And the point that I'm trying to get at is that me and my fellow buddies who went to this small school that I grew up in, inevitably felt like there was favoritism. We were not treated the same. We we were looked, uh, whether verbally or not so verbally, we we weren't from the big town. Our mommies and daddies weren't typically as rich as those people. Um, And I was very well off growing up, but there's the stigma. We were from that town. We go to that school. We go to that kind of house. And I I hate to say it, as much as I love the church, um, you know, we just... We just weren't treated the same. There was favoritism. And so I can very much relate to the scenario that James paints. And I think that you can too. I think that you can too. And and so the point that James is making, uh, we'll reiterate it. Verse 4. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves, and notice, notice this, and become judges? And so when we show favoritism, what are we doing? We become judges. It is judgmental. And so essentially what we're doing is if this is the, you know, the judge area, uh, we uh, put ourselves in the place of a judge. We throw on the black robe that a judge wears and we get our gavel and we pound the gavel down and before us is our fellow believer in Christ. Before us is someone that we are judging. We are making a judgment call. We are placing value you see that? We are placing value upon them for something, for anything other than the fact that they are made in God's image, that they are brothers in Christ, therefore should be treated just like 
everyone else, regardless of the rich or poor, black or white, Hispanic or not, this income, that income, this side of the tracks, that side of the tracks, trendy, not so trendy, socially acceptable, not so socially acceptable, uh, very socially, uh, uh, you know, it's comfortable in social settings, socially awkward, regardless. And what we do is we bang the gavel down and we play the role of judge is what James is precisely saying. And so, applicationally speaking, I want to help us to think about what this looks like in my life and in your life and in this church and in other churches. How do we show favoritism? In the scenario with James, it's about money. It's about class, if you will. It's about attire. And that's one, certainly one way that we can show favoritism. But there are a lot of different ways that we can show favoritism, specifically in the church. I'm just going to list off a few. First of all, race. Race, and, what I, and I'm not talking about the Indy 500. <laughs> I'm talking about the color of our skin. Um, this can happen in the church, unfortunately. People, tend, and I've heard it said before, and I think it's true, that Sunday mornings is probably the most uh, segregated hour in America on any given week. Uh, and that's sad, because the church is from every tribe and tongue and people, and, uh, and that's wrong. And so we can do that. We can treat someone, maybe they're not white, maybe they're Hispanic, maybe they're African-American, maybe they're from some other Indian, who knows? But they don't look like us. And they come to church, and we don't treat them with a level of respect, honor, love, acceptance. We are, number one, going against the gospel, and we are, number two, banging our gavel. Uh, secondly, not only race, but and there are a lot. I'm just throwing out some examples here. There are many, numerous ways that we can do that. Um, what about like uh, politics or economic uh, pers- perspectives? Um, there may be uh, people in the church, this church, that church, and they don't see quite like you do. Maybe they're a member of the other party. Maybe their economic strategy is a little bit different than yours. Maybe you don't see eye to eye on how the nation is supposed to be run. And, and so because of that... You don't listen to their ideas. You don't listen to their opinions. You think less of them purely because of that. What about profession? That's getting back to what we talked to before. Um, It's so amazing how we treat people who have different professions, different careers, differently. We treat someone who is a doctor possibly a little bit differently than someone who might be, say, a janitor or pick your... Pick your, you know, pick your career, something that our society doesn't value, doesn't as esteem as highly as a doctor may. What about personality differences? This is a big one in the church, is it not? Uh, we tend to clump around with people who are like us, who think like us, who like the things that we like. And uh, some people, uh, just, you know, personality conflicts happen, and it happens in the church. And it's an opportunity for us to show the unity and the love of the gospel. But it's also an opportunity for us to show favoritism. And so there's a person who is socially awkward. They don't speak right. They just don't quite have the mannerism that you would think that someone normally does. And so what do we do? When they walk in, do we run up to them and say, Oh, good to see you. Thanks for being here. Do we get them a cup of coffee? Do we share with them how our week went? Do we, when we go into Sunday school, offer them the good chair? Or do we avoid them when they walk in the door? Do we try to avoid sitting by them in the community? And when it's diner time, when we start that up again, do we just let them sit by themselves? Dress. We've covered dress before. Uh, But dress is a big thing. 
how we look, how we dress. Are we trendy? Are we not? Do we have the right haircut? Are we wearing what's in the stores? Are we wearing what's in the stores like five years ago? Like I sometimes do. <laughs> I'll admit it. Guys don't. We don't. We don't do wardrobe very often. You know, we don't. Uh, so. Uh, a dress can be one of those things. I heard an interesting story. I think you'll find it interesting. CBS Coast to Coast. I don't know if they do that anymore, but it was like a new special. Several years ago, CBS Coast to Coast did a special. You know, they do those investigative kind of things. And so CBS Coast to Coast, as I get a drink, did this, uh, did this investigation. They wanted to know um, who, what kind of people we perceived as trustworthy. And so they kind of set people up. They would take this one guy, and he was the main character, and he had a bike. And so he was in like a downtown city area. And he would go, and he would kind of put on a a farce, and he would say, hey, uh, listen, I I need to run into the coffee shop. Will you take my bike? Just watch it. Watch my bike for five minutes. I'll be back. And so, you know, he did this to all sorts of different kinds of people. He did it to, um, you know, regular, like a mom with their kids. He did it to, like, a businessman. He did it even to a security guard. And he even did it to a homeless couple. And so he did this thing. And the, the two interesting results that I want to point out that I found fascinating is in that, out of those categories, who would you think would be most trustworthy? I don't know about you, but if I'm going to place my bike in the hands of somebody, it's going to be the security guard, right? Security guard, okay? And what would happen is, and I didn't tell this, what would happen is then like a minute or two, or two later, they placed someone who, who uh, acted like a robber. They went to try to steal the bike, and they wanted to see how people would respond if they would stick up, if they would just let it go. You know, what would happen? Okay, and the security guard, guess what he did? Let it go. He let it go. He just... All right, the security guard, right? Guess who were the only people, not the only people, guess who were the people who fought the hardest for the bike? Guesses? The homeless couple. Now, we just don't think that that's true, do we? Because they smell and they look different and they must, you know. And the point is simply this, that upon our outward appearance, we cast judgments upon people's trustworthiness, upon whether we should listen to their opinion, upon whether we should treat them good or not. And so James has given us two tools. It goes against the gospel. It makes us judges. And then the third tool he shares with us in verses 5 through 7. We're going to go through this a little bit faster. The third tool that he shares in verses 5 through 7 is that it is inconsistent. Showing favoritism ultimately in our life experience is inconsistent. Um, I'll show you what I mean in just a second. When I was uh, gone last week, uh, I was in Branson, Missouri with my family, and uh, I was able to go golfing with my brother-in-law. Now, he and I are pretty bad golfers, and really bad golfers, <laughs> and so we went and bought a bag of like the cheapest balls we could find because we knew we would lose half of them. And so we have these balls, and we're... On the first tee, you know, and you know, here I'm getting warm up, and I, boom, right? And it goes, hmm, into the next county. And uh, I'm like, I'm going to tee it up again. And so I tee it up again, and that's how I play golf, by the way. Mulligans all the time. And so I'm like, all right, boom. And it goes, into the next county. <laughs> it's the exact same place. And uh, he said to me, well, at least you're consistent. <laughs> Um, and what James is going to say to these believers is, you know what, you're not consistent. 
You're not acting consistently when, especially in their context, you treat a poorer brother poorly. First of all, verses 5 through 6, what he says is, it's inconsistent with your experience coming to faith. And what he's going to say is that, man, when you placed your faith in Jesus, when God chose you and showed favor to you, it's not because you were rich. In fact, most of you, and he peers across this Jewish Christian early church, and he says, man, look at, look at the congregation. Most of you guys are poor, is what he says. Verses 5 through 6a. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? Contrast, but you have dishonored the poor man. What he's saying is that when they came to faith, as was true in the early church, for the most part, most of the people who were in the early church were not the social elite. They were not, for the most part, wealthy. Paul echoes this in the book of uh, 1 Corinthians when he says, not many of you were noble, not many of you were wealthy, not many of you, and he goes on and on and on. And so he's simply pointing the, the fact out is that when you treat a Christian in your church who is rich better than you, because you're poor, most of you, you're being inconsistent. He says, if God doesn't play favorites with the rich in bringing people to faith, Neither should you. That's the point that he's making. Secondly, he not only points towards their experience in coming to Jesus, but he points to their current experience. And uh, James speaks specifically to a culture and a church that is experiencing persecution. And notice what he says in verses 6 through 7, uh, 6b through 7. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you? And the ones who drag you into court. Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Essentially what they, what James is saying is that, man, you're being persecuted. Look around. Who's typically, typically persecuting you? Well, it's the rich people, probably Jews who are not Christians, likely, who are persecuting them. Not only were they persecuting them, but they were blaspheming the name of Jesus. They were speaking ill against their God. Uh, Dr. Constable gets it right when he summarizes the point here. He says, James reminds his readers that the characteristic, important word, that the characteristic response of the rich to them had been to oppress them. How inconsistent it is to despise one's friends and to honor one's foes. And the point that I want us to take away here is that simply this, when we show favoritism to uh, brothers and sisters in Christ, when we treat them differently, ultimately we are being inconsistent with how God treats us and with how other people treat us as well. So we're going to move on. We've seen three tools, right? It goes against the gospel. We become judges. It's inconsistent. Fourth, the fourth tool that he wants us to put in the holster, the tool bag, if you will, that we have around our waist, is that favoritism, one, is a sin. Favoritism is a sin, but not only that, it is a, severe, it is a sin that is severe. It is a sin that is severe. And he's going to, to now, I, I think kind of maybe combat an objection. Someone may be, in his mind, listening to this, who is showing favoritism. Likely this kind of stuff was happening in the early church, as it does today, forevermore, uh, until Jesus comes back. Um, and, and so he's, he's looking uh, at that, and he's answering an, an objection that someone may say. Someone may say, Come on, James. I mean, seriously, you're really coming down hard on us, man. I mean, okay, I know that I'm treating the rich guy a little bit better. I'm giving him a better seat. I'm listening to his opinion. I know he gives more to the church, so I'm going to give him treatment. 
Okay, James, yeah, I'm doing that. But really, I mean, really, is it that big a deal? I mean, is it really, does God really care that much about favoritism? That's the objection that James now seeks to answer. And essentially what he says is, yes, it's a sin, and two, it's worse than you think. It's worse than you think. First, verse 8 and 9, James says this. He says, favoritism is a sin because it breaks Jesus' commandment. I'll repeat that. Verses 8 and 9, what essentially James is saying is that Jesus told us, in fact, when someone came to him and said, what's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with your heart, mind, soul, strength, and what? Come on, you know it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so Jesus says, the whole Old Testament, that's the point. You love Jesus, you love others. You love God, you love others. And so that's a commandment that Jesus gave to the church. And what James is simply saying is that, even the small, small sin of showing favoritism breaks that. Verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law, which is the law he's going to quote from Jesus, if you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. Essentially what he says is that Jesus being the king gave us a royal law. Maybe it means it's the, the, the overarching law like we talked about. In other words, if you love your neighbor as yourself, then, then every other commandment that the New Testament and that Jesus teaches on relationships, if you love your neighbor, it's covered. You know what I mean? It's covered. And so he says, if you do that, good job. <laughs> You're doing well. Keep it up. Verse 9. But... But if you show partiality, that's the same word that James introduces in verse 1. So he's going back to this idea of favoritism. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin. It's a a sin. And are convicted by the law, Old Testament law, or more likely the royal law here that Jesus said, As a transgressor. And his basic point is this. You may say you love people. You may say that you're obeying Jesus. You may say that you're loving your your neighbors as yourself. But if you show favoritism, then you're not. Real simple. You're not doing it. And he wants them to know, yes, it's a sin. But not only that, he says it's a serious sin. He's trying to make the point that it's, it's meaningful, it's significant. And so let me ask you this question. What would be, in your mind's eye, maybe the worst possible violation, the worst possible way that you could not love your neighbor as yourself? I could think of a lot of things that I could do or say to someone, to one of you as my fellow Christian, that would be breaking that law. But a couple uh, come to mind. I could murder you. Come on up here on the stage. Okay, yeah. I could murder you. I wouldn't be loving you. Obviously, <laughs> or um, I could uh, I could uh, I could be an, an adulterer. I could sleep with one of your wives. That's what James says. As he says, listen, it's as bad. It's just like this. Look what he says, verse ten. For whomever keeps the whole law but fails in one point. That is, the point of favoritism has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, that is, God said that, also said, don't commit murder. 
If you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. And I think the point that he's getting at is that you do, you show favoritism, you break Jesus's commandment, and he chooses for us two ways, two extreme examples, if you will, of what it looks like for us to not love one another. And he says, it's that severe. I think that's the point. You know, I think uh, oftentimes, as we think about how we treat people, how we relate to people, I think we can find ourselves justifying our actions by saying, yeah, I may not treat that person with the respect that I treat this person. I may not, um, I may, my words may not come across as kind or as loving. Uh, the tone in my voice may not be as, as good as this, for this person than for that person. But what we think we probably don't say it, but what we think is that, but the janitor is a little person. They're just a little person, so it's a little sin. We don't treat them, well, it's just a little thing. We treat the pastor that way, and it's a big thing. We treat the doctor or the business owner who makes a lot of money and contributes to the church, we treat them that way. That's a big sin. Little sin for a little person. Big sin for a big person. Do we not? I mean, do we not? Do our minds not think this way? I was reading a commentary on James, and there is a, a, a good theologian who writes the commentary by the last name of Nistrum, Dr. Nistrum. And he told this story, and it fits perfectly with what James is saying here. He told the story that he was at a conference. It was like a New Testament conference, right? You know, the things that scholars go to, and they listen to each other, give their lectures and their ideas, and blah, 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 blah. And so he was sitting, and he was listening uh, in one session to, you know, another lecturer, and he was sitting next to another doctorate, another lecturer who happened to be there, a big-name guy. He was sitting next to the guy. He didn't know him, but he knew who he was. And so he's sitting next to him, right? And uh, the guy's done, and so they have a little break, and it's time for them to go get refreshments. So they go get refreshments, and apparently the hotel that it was at was under staffed and so there was like one or two guys trying to do drinks and you know it was just like a madhouse people were getting frustrated and so what Dr. Nistrum did is he said I'm gonna go help them and so he took off his jacket and he kind of undid his tie you know and he put it aside and he went and he served cokes and he served cookies and he said that when the guy that was sitting next to him came up in line he tried to make conversation he said how's, your, how's the conference how's it going what would you like and the guy was short and crass and, and essentially was like I know you're trying to have a conversation with me bye bye that's, that's how he summarizes it and so he said that then uh, it just happened to be as they went back to the conference that guess who was speaking next Dr. Nistrum. It was his turn to speak next. And so he said that he got up uh, and he began, you know, he looked across the audience and the guy who was sitting next to him was in the front row. And he looked at the guy's face and the guy was in shock and had utter horror that he hadn't belittled a bartender or a servant, but he had belittled the doctor. Dr. Nistrum, and that afterwards came up to him, did not apologize for how he spoke, but said, oh, what a wonderful lecture, and what do you think about this? And didn't acknowledge it. And I thought, man, that's exactly what James is trying to say. That's, that's what we do in the church. So applicationally speaking, we have to ask ourselves an important question. And the question is this, do we take favoritism as seriously as we should? And I'll let that sit in your mind a little bit. Do we take it as seriously as we should? Do we put it on the same moral 
level of importance that we should? Or do we just... Is it just something that we put up with? Is it just something that we are okay with? James is not okay with it. So, we have to ask that question of ourselves. Moving on, 12 and 13. Finally, the fifth tool that James gives us is that it brings about judgment. It gets heavier, I'm sorry. James, his fifth tool, it brings about God's judgment. It goes against the gospel, it is judgmental, it is inconsistent, it's a severe sin. And finally, 12 through 13, he says, essentially, you as a believer will be accountable for your favoritism. 12 and 13. Let's read this together. So speak and act as those who are to be judged. There's the word. Speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Uh, Before we move on, I want to make something clear. The Bible is very clear. The New Testament is very clear. If you place your faith in Jesus Christ, if you legitimately come to him and receive forgiveness and salvation simply by faith, not trying to earn it, and you are born again, you are made a new person, the Spirit comes to indwell you, that you will not be judged for your sins. The, The Bible is very clear. God's wrath will not come upon you. You're not going to be sent to hell as you should be and as I should be. Because of that, you are forgiven. There is not judgment. God's wrath will not come against you for your sins. That being said, the New Testament also is very, very clear that if you are a believer in Jesus, you will be held accountable before Jesus. That you will give an answer of your life, of your faithfulness, of your good deeds or lack thereof before the King, before Jesus And so this is what James is saying. He says, keep that in mind. Speak to those in the church and act to those in the church who are going to be judged by the law of liberty, which I think he relates to the royal law. Love your neighbor as yourself. So realize how you love your neighbor as yourself will be accounted for. And then in verse 13, he reminds us, he says, judgment is without mercy, I think, referring to the judgment of Jesus here, of believers. Judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. I think what he's simply saying is that when we show favoritism, we are not showing mercy. We're not uh, not giving people what, what they deserve. That's what mercy is, not giving people what they deserve. And so when I show mercy to someone, when I don't treat someone with favoritism, I'm showing mercy to them. And what, what James says is that if you don't do that, if you don't show mercy and do show favoritism, Jesus is, will, will judge you, for judgment is without mercy. And I don't think what that means is Jesus is going to say, you're going to hell. What he's going to say in that moment is, this is, this is what you did. And it was not honorable to me. I will not reward you for this. That's what that means. You're not punished, but you don't get a crown. You don't get a reward. You don't get to stand before Jesus in an honorable way and say, this is how I honored you, Jesus. I did your favoritism. I treated this person the same as that person. It's to your glory. We won't get to do that. That's what I think James is saying. But then he gives us a word of hope. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And I think, very simply, that means the reverse. If we do show mercy to our fellow believers, if we don't show favoritism, when we stand before Jesus, he will show mercy to us. He will applaud and reward and crown us for that. 
at the judgment seat of Christ. And so we have five tools, if you will. And what we're going to do is we're going to end our service um, with this. You see the elements before you. There's bread. There's uh, juice. And what I want us to do is I'm going to pray. And then I want to give us just a quick minute. And I challenge you to do this. Are there areas of life that you're showing favoritism in the church? Is there someone God is laying on your heart? Do you need to repent of something? Do you need to talk with someone? Do you need to apologize to someone? Uh, Chew on those things. Prepare your heart. Be cleansed. Be forgiven by the blood of Christ. And if you are a believer, if you've placed your faith in Jesus, I invite you to come uh, to the table, if it were. Uh, Take the bread, which is Jesus' body. Take the the grape juice or wine, which is Jesus' blood. We remind ourselves of the gospel that favoritism goes against. And we take this. And I I want us to do it this way. We began the service with favoritism. This side, yay, candy, chocolate. This side, sorry, (laughs) no chocolate. There was favoritism. What I want us to do to show that the gospel unites us and that favoritism is opposed to the gospel, which is represented in these elements, what I want us to do is take a minute, pray, and then I'm going to invite you to come. And what I would like for you to do is each side uh, to, to come together. And So this row, come together with that row. That row, come together. Do you see what I mean? File in like that. Wait. The next row is wait. When they're done, then you come together and you form a unified line and you take the elements together. Does that make sense? Just like that. File in. And it's a demonstration that those who are the haves and those who are the have-nots are made equal at the cross. And just to end on a good note, if you haven't received some candy on your way out, enjoy. So let's